Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We'll discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm here today with Lee Wilson. Lee's an adjunct senior research fellow at the Center for Policy Futures and Anthropology at the University of Queensland, Brisbane, Australia. And he's an organizational change and development consultant with having worked with organizations such as the WHO, UQ International, and has uh, Spent a lot of time in the development world, which is a bit different than sort of the you know for-profit business uh, world that I'm often working in. So I'm very excited to talk to you, Lee. Thanks for coming on. Uh, would you start by letting everybody know how you got interested in anthropology? Yeah, of course. And, and thanks for having me, Matt. Really appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> I suspect it's a story that isn't that different from a lot of people's. Um, I started out life <clears throat> originally as a mechanical engineer. So I left school. Um, and wasn't that interested in school. Truth be told, didn't like it very much, was actually thrown out of school. Excuse me. Um, my father was a mechanical engineer and so set up <clears throat> working uh, commercially, which is, 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 is relevant to the story later on, running a business with him. Um, and then I guess when I was... 20 years old, decided um, to go to Indonesia. I had long been interested in, and, and practiced Indonesian martial arts. So thought that I would go to the source, spent some time in Indonesia, came back. My interest in different cultures was more than peaked. I was absolutely, I'd grown up in the, the suburbs of London. I didn't know that much about the world outside of London. Um, so then disappeared to India for a year, wound up in Japan for a while, eventually made my way back to London and decided to go give up being a mechanical engineer and to, to study anthropology. Um, wanted something that could allow me to indulge my interests. And this is where I think a lot of people come into anthropology initially with some kind of interest in culture, places, people, or a particular practice. And mine was Indonesian martial arts. Um, and then uh, after a first degree in anthropology at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, um, went back again um, doing some work commercially as a business development consultant working in Southeast Asia, um, but was persuaded by uh, someone that went on to become my supervisor for my PhD, a guy called Leo Howe at the University of Cambridge to come back to do a, a PhD on, on um, Indonesian martial arts. And I thought at the time that this would be, you know, the perfect opportunity to uh, indulge myself for two years, studying martial arts for every day, you know, every day and, and, and kind of hanging out with, with you know, great martial art teachers in Indonesia. And it, and it was all of that, but it turned out to be um, less about uh, martial arts, the practice of martial arts, and more about uh, cultural change, institutional change. And that led to this, this, this uh, <clears throat> fascination kind of that, that hasn't gone away with the, the ways in which uh, institutional culture um, changes over time, the ways in which um, organizations frame practice, the ways in which embodied practice isn't something that you, know, you have to see it in its broader context. So um, this, this, this was the journey in and, and, and the, the transformation of my interest as well. 
And so, so it's, it's, it's a fun story, not only to hear you bounce around the world and of course how it is so similar that we all have these, you know, interests of culture and that, that drags us in you often through sort of strange journeys, but it is funny to hear how, uh, you sort of got to, you know, to really pair that with martial arts. That's definitely a unique one, uh. I mean, for many people, it, it ends up being something like that. They get to pair with their passion, but you know, martial arts is the first time that's come up on, uh, on the podcast. So it's pretty cool. Uh, and nothing like studying it for two years for, you know, uh, probably being funded by the institution, right? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I, I remember meeting, I, was, I had a, a scholarship with the, um, the head of, the, well, I had a scholarship with the Economic and Social Research Council in the UK. And remember meeting the head of the organization at the time, I forget the guy's name. Um, who was going around the room asking people to introduce their projects. And I mentioned to him what mine was and his reaction was, we're funding that. So, um, <laughs> so, so I thanked him profusely and said, yes, uh, it's uh, obviously going to be a great benefit to mankind. Uh, yeah, so. yeah, well, good for you. Um, but obviously, as you said, you know, that, that sparked a larger interest. Now, um, as I often like to ask, while that may have... Um, indicated to you that there was a path forward here around you know organizational change and it's still not a clear you know while you, while that fire might have been burning figuring out how to get from studying martial arts with that interest into you know more consultative type roles is you know still not a very clear path for maybe some right that's seeing the picture between those is is still uh how you get there is interesting. So did people around you tip you off to where you might do that work? Or you know, how did that happen that you found your way into monetizing that? I, I mean, I was two things, I guess. Lucky in a sense in that um, <clears throat> grad school and postdoctoral roles that I had um, were both in a place where uh, there was a network of, of consulting going on where it wasn't that unusual uh, for academics to consult. Um, this is in Cambridge in the UK, and so there's a real kind of ecosystem around uh, you know, the companies that are based there <clears throat> and the university. Uh, and I kind of gravitated towards that. Also, um, with the help from kind of friends and mentors, um, one guy in particular in the computing uh, in the computer uh, science department there, um, Professor Alan Blackwell um, was very helpful introducing me to networks of people that I could start to um, kind of build a, a, a consulting business around. And so I, I kind of ran a, two careers side by side. So I had a kind of you know, postdoctoral role at the Center for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities um and at the same time started to develop a consulting business alongside that um i was always rolled out by the careers department in cambridge to their talks to grad students because they they saw me as a an example of someone that ran a, a portfolio career they referred to as at the time and i think this is becoming increasingly relevant now the the ability to be able to to have a number of different projects that kind of run consecutively and which you know can provide you with with, with income yeah so i guess there's an interesting point there when when we talk about the you know the historic very well recognized anthropology programs in the states you know, they're t traditionally four-field programs. They aren't very kind to people who wish to practice, especially within business context. Um, and so I'm just wondering, at Cambridge, were they teaching any of that or were they just friendly to it you know, as a sort of a you know, tangential activity? I think it depends who you're talking about. I think within the department itself, uh, at the time, anthropology was taught as a relatively rarefied uh, intellectual discipline. And I don't think it would be overstating the case to say that there was some reticence to engage with things that were more practical in the world. Ethnography was seen as very much a descriptive practice. More generally in the university, 
and especially in areas um, you know kind of technology computing science that had that connection with the business world um, it was common practice but I yeah within anthropology itself no and, you know and, and if I'm really honest I think one of the major pitfalls of anthropology in the way that it's taught in many programs still um, is the failure to teach students what the real value of the discipline is, of what the skill set is that we're um, trying to inculcate in them um, more broadly. Um, there is so much a focus on development of, of, of uh, an academic career. Yeah. And academic careers are about singularities, yeah? They're about picking a theme and flogging that theme to death about doing every bit of it inside out, about writing articles about it, producing your books, and you know, this is how you get on in academia. And that's all well and good. But this was the other thing that I always found quite restrictive. Um, and, and, and one of the reasons that I gave up a kind of consulting practice to come back into academia was because there were so many things that interested me. And I always found it really very constrictive to be forced to study just one thing. And so the beauty of, of, of um, at the time of running, you know, kind of two careers was that I was able to indulge myself in that respect. Um, it, it, it became more essential. Well, my wife and I were both academics at the time. We, we met at university and we, we had the whole two bodies problem that, you know, that, that, that academic couples um, always have to confront. You know, where can you both find work in the same place? And we, we managed to cope with it relatively well. Um, and then we moved from Cambridge to Indonesia for a while for a project I was running. Um, my wife was, was at the time intending to find work in Java, but then she ended up taking up a position with the University of Queensland in, in, in Papua New Guinea. So I, I followed her up to, 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 to PNG um, and, and ended up working at the Institute of IMR. But uh, the Institute of Medical Research uh, uh, in the highlands of, of Papua New Guinea. And this seemed perfectly normal for me. It's what you do as an academic is, 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 is you know, look at things that are incredibly interesting and of value, but it's not something you do in pursuit of a good academic career. And I think this is the real problem, is the ways in which we um, push students um, to, to the, you know, the, the academic career path um, tends to prevent you from, from, from being able to follow things that, that um, out of curiosity, out of the need because you, you feel they're of value. Um, it's the freedom that you gain from stepping outside of the academy, I think. I mean, there's, there's, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit um, to try and maybe tie this all together. So you're doing, you know, you're in the academy and you're consulting. So for people who might be in a similar position, you know, maybe their full-time gig right now is, is as a faculty member, but they're maybe looking to get out and looking to pick up some consulting gigs. Or alternatively, maybe they are more like myself where, you know, I've always squarely been outside of the academy, always planned to be, but I've always wanted to adjunct just a bit with the intention that later in life, I would teach a little bit more um, full time. So how have you balanced that over the years? You know, what have you done to make that work, especially considering you're moving around and you have these sort of life circumstances, but, you know, I'd like to hear just how you handled it, how you balanced it, but also, you know, were you publishing academically, you know, because, you know, do you have the time to do that when consulting or and vice versa, the work that you're doing in the consultative space? Do you have the opportunity to bring that back into the academy and share that information? I mean, the first thing, I'm a blatant opportunist. Yeah. So and I, and I think, yeah, um, which I think all good ethnographers are, you know, um, uh, the two things that sit at the heart of my consulting practice are the value of diversity and difference, which is something that you know is, is essential to, to, to anthropology, and um, the um, the ability to see everything ethnographically. So, any situation um, in which 
you find yourself you can start to see you know if you think about things ethnographically you think about the power relationships you think about the ways in which you're engaging with people you think about um as an ethnographer uh the ways in which you can generate relationships that are relevant to what it is that you want to find out that's pretty much how i've seen both worlds yeah Finding time to publish and you know to 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 legitimate yourself as uh, as an academic is difficult. It does entail an awful lot of work, and you know, and 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 especially you know as a relatively junior academic with family, um, the pressures are incredible. I mean, this is one of the reasons, if I'm perfectly honest with you, you know, I, I encourage graduate students that I have anything to do with at the moment not to stay in academia. I think the pressures are too great. I think that they can find more gainful employment and a better work-life balance outside of the academy in a lot of universities currently. I mean, especially in the States, the situation there with regard to the kind of, you know, huge reserve army of unemployed labour and the ways in which people get treated is appalling. Um, so, so being able to find that path being able to balance the two um it wasn't easy um it did revolve um around you know uh, my career and my wife's career and if i'm really honest you know the, the push finally to step away from you know completely to, to set up a consulting business was because my wife had a position that was often to her in, in, in geneva and so we you know gave up academic positions um at the university of queensland neither of which was permanent both you know kind of contract um basis um to to take the step you know, to, to come back to europe and that, that's been fantastic it's been completely liberating i still do maintain an adjunct position and i think that's valuable um and one of the things that i do attempt to do is to break down the uh the perceived boundary between kind of you know theory and practice and especially in, in, in policy spaces um, but I also think it's that, that, that being able to walk in both worlds as it were um, depends on which sector you're working in and I think it would be far more difficult to do that um, if I were working purely in private in, with, with private industry the fact that i work a lot in development with people that are you know generally educated to graduate level um in which there's a whole discourse and study of you know the practice of development there's always that kind of difference between those that do and those that write about it but but it's a lot easier to negotiate those two spaces I can write blog posts, I can write articles, and I know that people I work with may even read those. In, 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 in private industry, it's completely different. And being honest with you, Matt, this is, this is something that I'm learning is, is, is um, that the theory doesn't matter to, to people in, 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 the, in, in private industry. You have to learn, and I think this is one of the real barriers to uh, people coming out of grad school going to work commercially um, is is learning how to talk a different language and again ethnography is incredibly important here we spend so much of our time learning to understand how people uh, think critically about the world how they relate to one another differently to those in which we're used to um, and that is something that we can use in learning how to negotiate our way through dealing with clients, dealing with learning to explain about what we do in ways that others can perceive it. You know, one of the things that we do really badly, I think, as anthropologists, um, is is uh, explain what we do in, in in everyday terms that other people are able to to, to grasp and understand. We're given to over intellectualization, and, and I think that that's probably one of the biggest issues with anthropology as a discipline is you know quite often um you know anthropologists like talking to other anthropologists you say stepping outside of that is quite difficult practically how you negotiate those 
those two different spheres of practice though um you know it is difficult and I, i'm sure it, 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 it varies according to the amount of time and effort that people are willing to put in to develop their careers but when you look at the pressures that are put upon academics especially young academics what they can gain from that and the relative amount of you know, the amount of time that it takes in order to build a, a an academic career as opposed to building a career in consultancy i think it's a no-brainer as to where people should be going i mean we're always going to need anthropologists to train other anthropologists but i think that we're really shortchanging uh students in, in in universities across the world by not teaching them the value of what they can do outside of academia and not teaching them the practical skills of how to sell themselves yeah and and and, and again I, I guess this is is, is is also kind of um a cultural issue as well i know that in the states people are a lot better at doing this people are able to sell themselves more easily, I think, for a number of different issues historically. I think the ways in which grad schools work in the States perhaps as well feed into this. Um, but there is at times reticence on the part of, 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 of you know, uh, guys out of grad school to sell themselves, to talk about, you know, to talk about how well they can do things, you know, how to, how to sell yourself. I think this is really important. This is something I'm still learning now as I do look for work uh, and find work um, that's uh, outside of the development sector. So I want to come back to a few of those thoughts in, in just a bit, but to just stay on the development sector for a short period of time. So I know you're at Cambridge, you're around, you know, uh, around a group of people who were working with other organizations that kind of helped create a network for you to move into this space. But Seeing as you're the first person on the podcast who has done, I'd say, a significant amount of work in the development area, what, for anybody who's interested in going into that versus, you know, working, say, in tech, what have you learned from that experience over the years? And what would you suggest to somebody who is a graduate student now? Uh I mean, the first thing is networks, build the networks. And as I mentioned before, I was, I was relatively lucky because of the fact that, um, I guess two things, two things. I, I, I'd had some background living and working in a place where um, I now still do um, quite a lot of work in Papua New Guinea. Um, so I had an added advantage there. The fact that... Um, the university which I was teaching had a, a business unit, um, which you mentioned earlier, University of Queensland runs uh, its own consulting unit. Um, so that, that, that transition was easier to make. Um, but it's about building networks. And I, and, I, and I think this is the thing that always seems to be most daunting. Um, but in actual fact is the single most important factor in building any consulting business from my perspective and i don't know about how you uh how your career has unfolded and the ways in which you go about finding clients but you know you, you, websites and, and and linkedin is all well and good but it's the personal relationships that matter and you need to invest time in those you need to find who it is that you want to talk to who the key decision makers are the thing that i found critical was stopping thinking about what it is that I can offer and starting to think about what it is that people need. And it might seem quite an obvious thing to say, but once you start to look to see what it is that people might require and then how you might be able to, um, to meet those needs, how it is that you can add value, that was quite critical as well. So aside from the networks, aside from, and as I say, I, I, I don't know if I'm that good an example because of the fact that I was, you know, I was quite fortuitous in, in, in that um, I came from a place in which existing relationships allowed me to, you know, I could capitalize on those relationships in which there was a business unit within the university that I was at that I could begin to generate business through. Um, but I, but I think you know, this is really important, um, not just looking to see what it is that you can offer, 
but looking to see what it is that people need and how it is that you can fulfill those needs, how it is that you can add value. Okay. And now question on organizational change in that space. So it's not the space I've worked in at all, right? So it's it's not an area I know, but it would seem like you're dealing with, you know, very large, diverse, multinational, you know, bodies of people trying to get them to kind of coalesce around some initiative and move effectively together. And that seems like it would be a challenging you know, or daunting task. And so, you know, I appreciate there would be still a lot of similarities to modern, very large multinational businesses. Um, but how did you, you know, what did you learn from that experience within the development space? And then, you know, after that, I'd be curious to know how does that look similar or how is that different from, you know, for-profit multinational businesses? I mean, uh... It's, it, I, 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 two things. I think that when you think about organizational change, one of the um, the real benefits that anthropology has is thinking holistically. Yeah, and so the ways in which you're able to think about culture in its institutional context, think about the ways in which people relate to one another, um, that's a value. Whether it's in a development setting or whether you're working with a, a multinational. Um, I think that the, um, to some extent, the obvious difference here is, you know, if you're working in development, you're working in some way to drive positive social change. So whatever your thoughts are on development and whether it's become overly monetized and the ways in which it's managed today, um, needs complete completely to be you know overhauled and decolonized whatever that to one side generally the motives for you know for being involved is is different from 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 working from a, a, a large multinational in which the overarching uh raison d'etre is, is you know is is profit but um when you're thinking about understanding change from uh, a client's perspective when you're thinking about how it is that they can uh, push the uptake of a new business process or whether they can start to think uh, differently from a, a, a perspective of a user or, or, or around a new product or whether you're thinking in policy spaces about how you can introduce i don't know um, new governance uh, uh, mechanisms. You know, we're thinking about people. We're thinking about the ways in which people uh, engage with one another, how they relate to one another, and, and, and uh, how um, they make sense of the world. And that's not that different if we're thinking about being in the development space or working with a multinational. What is different, I think, um, are you know the power relationships and how you begin to figure out where the pressure points are for change, how you can begin to figure out what it is that's possible, um, who has authority, who has legitimacy, what are the informal power structures. These are the same questions that I bring to the table, whether I'm working with a private client or whether I'm working in a development space. And so, how I might frame things in you know, client feedback um, varies, but ultimately the approach is the same. I'm an ethnographer at heart, and ethnography is what allows me to gain insight into how people think critically about the world and interact with one another. And it's equally relevant whether I'm working in health, development, uh, conflict resolution, new technologies for, 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 for public health, all of these areas in which I've worked, I've worked in pretty much the same way. So your process is similar. The way you look at it, of course, is similar. But to your point earlier about communicating, so you said two things on communication. One that, you know, especially in business, we have to drop theory, say, and we need to be sort of to the point. 
Uh, whereas in, you also said in the development space, you have other people who are educated to typically a graduate level. They themselves might, you know, be in similar kind of, you know, adjuncting roles or they're, you know, they're, they're sort of used to the publishing space. So when you're communicating in those two environments, do you have to kind of quote unquote, maybe like maybe like water down in the development space or do you just kind of go full steam ahead, kind of more anthropological versus the way you would approach it in the, you know, more than the for-profit private space? It, I mean, it depends what you're trying to do and how, you know, if, if you gain legitimacy from from being the academic, playing the academic, and, and uh, then, then yeah, it's a role that I'll assume. But in other contexts, another one of the techniques that, that, that one of the, the, the things that we've been working on over the last, I guess, five years now in Papua New Guinea with, with, with partners in Papua New Guinea is, um, and this is something that, that, that began back in the UK, but which I've used increasingly um, with, with good results is paraethnography. You know, the, the ability to work with people that understand their space far better than you and have ways of thinking and theorizing about that. And, you know, and, and, and done a lot of work with, um, with public servants in Papua New Guinea that are very good at this, um, of thinking about you know, their own uh, working practice. And so, um, it's, it's, it's working collaboratively in a way that goes beyond, I mentioned ethnography as descriptive practice, but, you know, kind of in applied ethnographic work, um, you're putting yourself out there alongside those that you're working with and having to find ways in which you can frame your ideas and concepts and the ways in which you're thinking about the problem, uh, which, um, change continuously develop because it depends on who you're talking to. So yes, if I'm presenting to a managing contractor, yeah, I can play the academic, but if I'm working with um, public servants and what they're telling me, I'm making sense of in one way, what I'm feeding back to them about how I make sense of that, 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 that process of co-production, something that fascinates me and something that I'm continuously learning about. Um, so, it, you know, it, again, it's contextual and again, ethnographic. I mean, it, you know, it, it does all come back, I think, to the ability as a good ethnographer to be able to speak to anybody from, you know, senior politicians to the, you know, the, the, the head man in the local community that you're working with, it, you know, to children, um, you know, in, in, in urban settings, everybody, um, you should be able to, 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 to scale what it is that you're saying in some way and find some way that you can have a, uh, a way of sharing common ideas and concepts. But it's all ethnographic. Ethnography, ethnography is at the basis of everything that I do. And, um, and, you know, people laugh when I say that. I mean, one of the ways in which I often explain what I do rather glibly is people say, oh, what do you do? I, I, I put people back into strategy. And, but, but right at the heart of that is thinking ethnographically to enable you to put people back into strategy. And so, you know, at the, uh, you know, it's a nice way of saying it, it's easily understood, but in this sense, what do you mean by strategy? Uh, the aims that people want to achieve in relation to the project in which I'm working on. So often, and especially I think in, 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 um, in corporate settings, um, and this is a space in which I'm continuously trying to, to, to drive business at the moment as well. You'll find very well through, or thought through you know, strategic plans of where we're going to be five years time, what we want the outcomes to be, how we're going to achieve these things. Often what they, um, fail to take into account are uh, what people's values are, um, what people's capabilities are, how people relate to those strategic plans. And I think often there's a disjuncture, which I would say, again, linking kind of you know, um, industry and, 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 and development spaces together. There's a disjuncture between senior management and, and kind of middle management, the guys that do and the guys that think about things. And so when you have a strategic plan, you're trying to put it out, they're trying to put it into place. Quite often, I find, there isn't enough consultation done at the level of those that are going to be uh, implementing uh, a, a particular strategy. So a lot of the stuff that I do 
uh, is thinking about things from, from the perspective of, 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 for example, policy, designing policy, but thinking about implementation from the start, not just thinking in terms of, 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 of what you want to achieve, what the strategic outcomes might be, but how is that actually going to play out? How are you going to achieve this? And that, again, is a space in which uh, there's room in development, I think, for a, 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 a hell of a lot more theorizing, uh, a lot more um, consideration of how it's achieved. No one really knows. Lots of talk about it, and especially in development spaces now, we talk about you know adaptive management and iterative approaches to, to, to project management. But how you actually do it, how you bring people in, take them along with an idea, how you take a set of principles that you're that underpin the the the, the strategy that you're attempting attempting to implement, how it is that you can uh, convey that and make it work at the level of practice. So you know, ethnography again, Matt. It's all about ethnography. This is what it comes back to. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, let's let's use that and um, tie that to to your own challenge right now. So uh, you had said a few minutes ago that you are trying to get more work, you know, in the corporate space. Um, so that's a goal you're trying to achieve. You have to now sort of, you know, have some tactics and strategy in place to get there. Um, you know, that's grounded in, of course, your own networks, but, you know, the way you frame yourself, the way you frame your business, et cetera. And so you said, you know, you kind of alluded to that it's a little bit of a challenge. And so despite your network, despite your, you know, experience uh, with you know, large organizations, you yourselves are having, you yourself are having a little bit of a challenge, you know, to break into this space. So why do you think that's the case? You know, what have you learned from that? And maybe what does that, you know, what does that teach us or, or what can that teach the next generation of people who want to do it? I, I think the central challenge is defining what the value of, anthrop what, what of ethnography is. Anthropological thinking, people can come around to this, but when it comes to the, the power of ethnographic insight, the ways in which you can generate real value from a story, uh, insight into how people make sense of a story, a narrative, um, once they get it, they're super excited about it. And, and, and I think, you know, over the last 20 years, over the last decade, especially, there's been this real revolution in business thinking. All of a sudden, ethnography has become, um, in a lot of circles, you know, it's, 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 it's the new black. Lots of people realize the power of ethnography and want, you know, um, want to have some involved. And you, you think of organizations um, uh, like Intel and the work that, you know, Genevieve Bell did there and driving that kind of... Um, that 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 understanding of the the the, the power that, that that you know insight from talking to a few people can give you that that I think is the central challenge um, of of uh, convincing people of how important that is and um, finding ways in which you can convey that without you know kind of falling back on. Uh, Bourdieu and Baudrillard and, 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 you know, falling easily, especially, you know, for me, coming from an academic background, finding ways in which you can convey that simply, that people can grasp what is of value in, 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 in what you're saying. Um, I had a situation recently with a, a, a pitch in which I thought that what I was saying was... Uh, put forward in plain and simple language and that you know, it would be very easy to grasp and realize that you know I was pitching here and they were here with regard to what they understood about anthropology, ethnography and where I was coming from. So sometimes you just you throw away ethnography and anthropology as concepts. You've got to find a different way of explaining what it is that you do and the value that you can provide. Um, as I say, it's, it's not just the fact that working in development, you're working with people that have some interest in the theoretical discourse. It's working in 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 you know in corporate environment. People are as they are in all organisations, but they're, they're 
It's a very different world in which you don't have time to step outside of that. And there isn't any value placed on, 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 on thinking outside of achieving your organization's defined financial outcomes for the year. So there's the, once you can, once you can get people to start to see the value in what you can do, that's the real challenge. And I would say it's the challenge for, for, you know, for, for graduate students that are looking to, to step into this space. I think, as you well know, user experience is a, is, is, is a practice and a discipline that's becoming widely regarded now as, you know, as something of, of great value. Um, but stepping into to other spheres, um, stepping into, you know, into world of finance, stepping into in, 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 in policy, these are areas that, that, you know, where you still need to do the advocacy work as well as sell your own services. Um, but that's the challenge of it. I mean, it's not just a financial challenge. I mean, obviously, it's well, you know, it's all good if you can have a, a business that's doing well. But also, it, you know, it's fascinating work being able to to step into environments that are really quite strange, that are quite alien. Um, you know, it's why people come into anthropology in the first place. And again, you're going back to what we teach our grad students, uh, or even you know, uh, kind of undergraduate students. The um, the the uh, the value and, and the satisfaction of being able to understand strange worlds in our own midst, I don't think is something that we push anywhere near enough. Sure. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I know I hear from various people, it's the case everywhere, but in the States, you know, studying, you know, within the States and more so studying sort of within like business culture, you know, is it's generally not looked, uh, it's, it's not favorable. And so, what are you doing, you know, in your adjuncting role? You've you've now said a few times that, you know, you're really trying to help shape your graduate students so that they realize the value of consulting outside of academia. And you're trying to sort of, it sounds like, help them get there. So aside from helping them realize, you know, the value selling themselves, what are you really doing to train the next generation? Oh, uh, honestly? Very little at the moment, Matt. I'm focused on my own business, to be completely honest. Nowhere near enough. But it is something that I want to increasingly push. So last year, we ran a couple of seminars at University of Queensland um, with a, a, a good friend of mine, a colleague there, Gerhard Hofstetter. Um, the, the anthropology uh, section within social sciences, University of Queensland, is quite small. But there, um, Gerhard's doing a great job of beginning to build relationships across the university. Um, I think he's running... Um, uh, optional courses with archaeology, well, so with with um, architecture in the engineering school. So, so within the university itself, beginning to um, to find those places where people can see um, what the power of anthropological thinking um, might bring. Um, but what I do think is 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 really necessary is for. Uh, more universities to, or more anthropology programs in universities to um, to lose that kind of reticence they have to engage with practice more generally, to realise that A, there's not enough jobs out there for academics, B, that universities quite often suck as places to be. You know, you're looking at the stuff that's coming out recently about, you know, kind of all sorts of... Um, universities in Australia and kind of unreported uh, bullying and gender politics and God knows what else without even going into this. Um, the workload, the, um, the, the, the fact that academic careers are, are you know, about singularities and about pursuing one thing kind of, um, you know, kind of relentlessly. Um, I think there's better careers to have and this is what we need to be teaching people. And, 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 and I think most importantly, those that are in academia at the moment, especially senior academics, need to realise that the world has, has shifted, that we can no longer continue producing anthropologists that are going to take up, take up academic jobs. That's not something that, 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 that I see um, uh, being pushed in a lot of places. Um, and, and, and pushing the, the power of, you know, of, of, of applied anthropology. Play, this is a lot of, there are some places that are doing it well. I think uh, University of Amsterdam has a good applied anthropology course. Um, I say University of Queensland is starting to, 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 um, 
to make tracks in that direction. Um, there's, um, an, I think in the States, a, it's starting now. People are thinking about running business courses. But, but if you Google business anthropology, you'll still only come up with a handful of courses online. And then again, and the focus is usually on UX as well, user experience, rather than on thinking more broadly about what you might do um, as an ethnographer. I think there's also a reticence to engage with the commercial world that we we perhaps need to examine more closely as well. You know, that whole kind of, it's all about profit, it's no good. Well, yeah, but you're never going to change anything standing at the outside ranting and railing about the fact that it's all about profit, you know? You've got to be part of it. You've got to have skin in the game if you want to change something, so. Yeah, and a lot of the money that funds universities, you know, comes from from the same uh, pockets in, in the end. So. Yeah, yeah, well, we've only got to look at business schools in most universities and that's where the money comes from, so yeah. So uh, I, I always, I agree with you completely that, you know, while UXs are wonderful, UXs provides wonderful careers, there's lots of other options out there. So just given the space that you've played in, you know, where do you see, you know, emerging areas that anthropologists should be looking to work? Policy, finance, Anywhere where, I mean, especially in the, in, in the, in the business world. I mean, UX is, is, is the obvious one, but when you're starting to think about the value that anthropology, what I, I say anthropological thinking can add and which applied ethnography can bring to any kind of process. You know, if we're talking about people and the ways in which people think about and shape the world, then that's pretty much any process. And, 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 and turning your question around, thinking about where you might add value in towels about seeing where there's a need to, to, to drive, you know, understand and drive change. And that's just about anywhere in the world today. We've never been in a more precarious situation, arguably, than we are today. So, you know, from um, working in, in, you know, if it's, if it's in the environmental space, if it is in the NGO space, but ultimately I would say, you know, while the opportunities might be developing initially with regard to jobs that are available in uh you know kind of don't let that limit your thinking with regard to where it is that you might find work i think this is the when i i, I continuously find anthropologists working in the strangest places you know kind of local government in europe and 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 um you know, architecture schools and places in which their job definition might not be you know, as an ethnographer and anthropologist, but which they're undoubtedly still thinking and, and, and practicing as anthropologists. And I think so, you know, I, I'd want to turn that question around because I wouldn't, you know, coming out of grad school now, I think if you were to say to someone, you know, this is the sector in which there's, there's real potential. I think, again, you're kind of limiting what it is that, that um, you're able to do. Think that anthropological mindset and the the skills that good ethnography entails you know everything from kind of empathy through to attentive listening are incredibly valuable for all organizations in a vast number of sectors so don't limit yourself that's you know that was the one thing that i would say i guess to people coming out of grad school now and not wanting to pursue an academic career and i would agree with you however when talking with people especially those who have gone all the way through to get a phd it seems like identity plays, you know, plays a, a role in that. They've they've worked so hard to achieve, right, this degree, and now they are not, you know, recognized as that. Versus, you know, a psychologist, an economist, right, and so it seems like that plays a role from the people I speak with, um, and I I can understand that justifiably, right? It's you know you've spent all this time and you're not even really recognized for what you've just studied and 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 the uh, you know the expertise you've developed. Um, but I you know would agree with you that we have the opportunity to bring anthropological thinking into all that we do, and doing that, and maybe even casually sort of training others to think like that throughout entire organizations may be of more value long term than having the job title that we really want. Well, I, I think you're absolutely on the money. I mean, I was at a, 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 last year at a conference for applied anthropology, and I asked the question in a small breakout group of the people that I was with at the time. Um, um, 
how important is it for you to be an anthropologist? You know, your identity as an anthropologist. And they all, except for one guy who's an architect, um, answered that yes, it's you know it's incredibly important. Some of them for professional reasons as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I've been told on a number of occasions by people, you know, don't sell yourself as an anthropologist. Others have told you anthropology is so important when you're trying to sell yourself. So, I mean, you know, again, it's contextual. How much emotionally you have attached to that? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I probably do. Um, but again, you know, I, some of the most successful development practitioners I know would never dream of putting doctor in front of their, their name, you know, they, but they are, they've got PhDs, they publish. So again, it's, I guess, and it's probably different in the States as well. Yeah, but you spend a lot more time doing PhDs, don't you? So you kind of, so it's, and a lot more money. And a lot more money, yeah. So it's about the fact that you're hugely indebted and it's just taken seven or eight years of your life. Yeah, yeah. So um, is there anything that you're working on, you know, any, any initiatives, anything that at all that you'd like to share with everybody? Well, it's a, an initiative we're, we're working on at the moment. This is the, it's, it's, it's a network of, of like-minded individuals um, called Kavava. Kavava means uh, ginger, the, 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 the root um, ginger, the, the, the vegetable in, in, in top pissing, Papua New Guinea. But, um, Ginger is also a rhizome, so this is why I get theoretical because I kind of, you know, I like rhizomes, as all anthropologists do. Um, it's the idea that you have a network in which nodes can can spring up, in which there isn't one centre, in which you know culture is unbounded. So the idea is that we have we, we we're we're forming a network called Kavava, which is uh, those that think in a like-minded way because we're not anthropologists. Um, development practitioners, those that work in, in in private industry, but at the heart of this is 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 the value of 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 difference, the value of diversity, uh, and how important this is um, for the world today, and promoting this as as a as a core principle. Um, and Kavava.com is 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 going to be up and running in the next couple of weeks, and this is something I'm really excited about. Um, this is my new project, and hopefully, what I intend to do for the next. 15 years until I retire, Matt, is, 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 is driving um, uh, this, this, this core principle that you know, difference matters, that diversity as a principle is, is probably what will save us as a species, the ability to think differently about things and to value difference and find ways in which we can disagree about things. Um, this is what sits at the heart of Kavava as an endeavor. So it's, it's both a company and a principle that's going to be uh, driving the, the uh, driving things forward over the next couple of years. Very cool. Well, this episode may go live prior to that website. So just whenever you have that link, send it to me and I'll add it to the show notes after the fact right, so that thank everybody you. can access it in the future. Um, but Lee, thanks, you know, for coming on. If anybody wanted to find you, get in touch, you know, what, where's the best place? LinkedIn's the best place. Just, yeah. Very well. And I'll link to that as well. So Lee, thanks again. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Matt. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology, and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.